Good morning, everyone. This is Nube Brown sharing space with you at KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and, of course, on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. Thank you for joining me this morning here on Prison Focus Radio. It has been a little while, and I'm so happy to be back here with you, especially now that we are in the environment of mass decarceration. I could not be more pleased. To me, this is our opportunity to act in the service of Ubuntu, shared humanity. I do want to give out a couple of pieces of information. Um, There is um, IWOC and Fight Toxic Prisons. That's IWOC, Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, and Fight Toxic Prisons have created a hotline. You can call um, from a wall phone, 510-301-9403. There is a general number, which is 410-449-7140. It sounds like if use that number if the uh, California number is not working. So again, that hotline number is 410-449-7140. I believe if you are in California, you can use 510-301-9403. For family members who have loved ones that um, we want to get this them get this number to them, they're um, outside of the earshot of this radio program right now. Please go to iwoc.crc at protonmail.com. That's iwoc.crc at protonmail.com. Also. Um, go to prisoneradvocacynetwork.org. This is not about the hotline. This is a new subject. Um, PAN, which is Prisoner Advocacy Network, just did a webinar called Getting People Out of Prison, How to Support People in CDC Small R and Asking for Release Due to COVID. You, again, can go to prisoneradvocacynetwork.org. You can listen to that webinar, and you can... Um, then have access or get some access to those uh, resources in order to get your people, our people, out of prison. So um, there are wonderful things that are happening out here. I hope all of you have been able to stay safe, shelter in place, um, self, do social distancing, But I do want to add another layer so that we can continue to uh, be grateful for where we are, but also extend our hearts out to those that are experiencing social isolation. This is, of course, a common occurrence in our prisons, but it is also manifesting itself out here. So please keep that in mind that people are having a very tough time. So whatever it is that you can do to be supportive and act out of love rather than fear, please do so. Um, This is a chance for us to really expand. COVID-19 is uncovering once again the fact that we are living in a time of modern-day slavery. The exception clause to the 13th Amendment states clearly that if one is convicted of a crime, they become the slave of the state. Slavery is manifesting itself within our prisons, and this is on our watch in 2020, but 
we are now, because of this pandemic um, that is being uncovered again, and we are in an environment calling for, again, mass decarceration. And how can we continue to uplift that um, in humanity? How we can be practicing shared humanity to make sure that um, our loved ones, the millions of people that are unnecessarily subject right now to potentially a death sentence, get them free and begin to start to build a world that is about transformative justice, um, healing justice, and in my world, a world without prisons. This is an excerpt of a recording that I took in conversation with McKinney, whose husband is has been incarcerated for over 40 years. I believe it's 45 years. He is one of the signers of the Agreement to End Hostilities and part of the Ashker class. It's a group of men that have been tortured by decades of solitary confinement. And what your, how you see it in terms of you, you navigating this relationship with your husband um, in prison for over 40 years. And now the two of you are in this pandemic and what, and how, how that looks, how you're navigating that. Like, how is it, yeah, how is it different? Um, I guess because, let me see how that, I mean, I was afraid initially, just because everybody's afraid. There's so many unknowns we don't know. Um, just for us out here, all the unknowns and us being safe and protected and things like that. But then you shift that to them being in there. Um, and so in terms of the sanitation, the distancing, if by God, you know, the worst case scenario, if he gets symptoms or someone else around him, what that looks like. I mean, like I have health care, so I know that I could get whatever I needed, um, knowing that that wouldn't be an option for him, knowing that if he got sick, I, he couldn't call me or I couldn't be with him or I couldn't make sure that he was having everything he needs. So um, what I did do was when we... Um, found out I was happening, I, I ordered him a package, the timing of it, so I just made sure that he had, I ordered him some sea salt, and um, it, it just took one of the remedies that I was at myself using, like, you know, they say that, you know, it starts in your upper nasal airway or whatever, so having him do the steam with orange pills, making like a saline sea salt kind of solution, um, and then just telling him, like, you know, when you go to the yard, you know, there's no, don't don't touch anybody, don't handshake, you know, any of that. You know, when when after any time the police come to your cell, you sanitize it. Fortunately, he does have access to disinfectant, so he was mindful of that. But I didn't want him to get in a space where he was like really, really tripped out. He understands, he's concerned, but I just, you know, just reinforced him daily, like um, what he needs to do to protect himself, stay healthy. And then try not to freak myself out because I, I, you know, like in Katrina, you know, they let those inmates die. You know, um, my worst case, I guess, fear is that um, the guards stop coming to work. Right. They have just become so widespread, and the guards are like, okay, well, I'm not coming to work. I mean, you know, I would love to know that the guards care. You know, we know that they don't care about, not all of them, so I'm not going to put that out there, but I know that they don't regard them as being significant, so they're not trying to protect them. 
but I, I'm hoping that the guards care enough about themselves that they would take the right measures so not to endanger the people that we love. You know, my husband, my brothers, my friends, people that support me, I hope that they care enough about themselves to take the preventive caution that they need to so they, that this does not become a widespread. It's not like I can call up there and ask how he's doing or, you know, any of those things. You know, I would, who knows how he would find out. I mean, I've, I've had people, you know, die in there, be sick in there, and if they don't have all of their paperwork, you know, because of HIPAA and, you know, we know what that's like out here for us. So imagine... HIPAA in there, and then, you know, they don't have their forms updated and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, um, try not to bother that. I am able to talk to him, you know, kind of daily, and so I don't make it, like, consume our conversation, but I'll just kind of touch on it. You know, um, did you, you know, tell him about, you know, like how they say you can live on shoes for this amount of time, so, you know, telling him, you know, be careful of this or careful of that. Um, like the food and stuff, the trays and stuff. He doesn't eat a whole, whole lot of it because he has, you know, a lot of surplus of his own. But, you know, don't, you know, just, you know, take the food out of those, um, however they deliver it to you. You know, those are the kind of things you have to pay attention to. And I just kind of casually kind of address it to him because, you know, I don't want him to get, like, super sensitive and start, like, you know, because some people are like, you know, we're not eating the food, the guards are coughing on the food, you know. I can't speak to that. I don't know how true it is. I, I'm sure it could be true, but we haven't experienced it to that degree. But just in case they, you know, you know, you just don't know. So. Right. Okay. Um, and then, so, and of course, that's the present moment. But, and then you're, I mean, you've been navigating this relationship again for over 40 years. 45, right? almost 45 years. See, that... So from the county jail, so from the substation in, you know, Los Angeles to the county jail to, you know, um, Chino, from Chino to Soledad, from Soledad to San Quentin, from San Quentin to Tehachapi, from Tehachapi to the dungeons of Pelican Bay, from Pelican Bay to Ironwood, and now he's in um, Tracy. So the good thing about being in Tracy, although... The program is not what he's a level two now that he's locked up as much now as he was before. That doesn't necessarily bother me so much because you know most level twos are a dorm setting, and he, you know, I would, I, I can't imagine him being able to function in a dorm setting. I've seen some of those pictures. I couldn't survive in a dorm setting. They're way too close. It's way too many people, um, and you can't take somebody that has been subjected for thirty years of being alone and traumatized and put them in a room with. 200 people and not even two feet between them. No, that, that's, that's psychological trauma. Right. So I guess that, that then brings me to that, like how, how to navigate that as, I mean, as a, just the one um, who, the I, one who loves him, right? The whole psychological aspect, like that's a, that's a, something that you can't see, right? Mm -hmm. So, do you do you feel like he's the, well? The two of you, because you're going through this with him, have you been able to get your needs met in that way? I mean, COVID, right? Like, okay, he he has the the, the supplies he needs to disinfect, and he did, can take these precautionary measures. But what about the, so? 
there's another thing around around prison and having someone incarcerated. How do you navigate that? So it's psychological needs. Um, you know, it's a work in progress for both of us. Um, but I, um, my personality is so strong, and and I and, and I know I just make him dizzy because I'm a lot. <laughs> but I just tell him, I just tell him what I need. Straight up, like I told him today, like I need you to call me and say, "Baby, I love you. I miss you. I was thinking about you. How's your day going?" I said that'll take a long, that'll take me a long way, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to you calling me because sometimes the conversations and understandably so are so intense that I he shares stuff with me that I can't I can't process because I, I'm not there. So, you know, but it, it, it concerns me. So maybe an incident or, or they don't have gun covers over the guns. Well, what would I know about that? And how can I do anything about that? But it's a concern for him, so it's a concern for me. Mm-hmm. So um, trying to just kind of, I guess, in as much as you can have a normal relationship, try to incorporate that in this, this hellhole that is his, is his world. I mean, it's almost like, calling Mars and, you know, trying to talk about going to the grocery store, but they don't have any grocery stores up here. So I'm trying to explain that to him. (laughs) You know, he's trying to comprehend it. Um, You know, we have, like, some days we'll talk about different stuff, and it's light and it's funny and, you know, it's just laughter. And just to hear that laugh and that humor coming from, like, deep inside of him is beautiful. Um, and, and sometimes it, it's cool like that. Sometimes we roll it, you know, but then if it's something intense or if I'm in a bad space, whether it's just my life or work or whatever, I'm trying to get him to tune into that. In the midst of every few minutes, they're telling us how much time we have on the call. Right. <laughs> you know? So you're like, okay. Um, or like, for example, like he, when he got transferred, <clears throat> they didn't give him his medication and, you know, because, you know, I'm in healthcare, you know, like he recently started taking high blood pressure medicine and the doctor must have told him no matter what, you know, don't miss a dose, take the pill, da, da, da. He, you know, so he's just doing, like, I'm here and they haven't given me my medication. I haven't had it in a couple of days. So he's going and you can see him getting, you know, like anticipating something. I said, it's okay, a day or two is not going to hurt you, you know, but, you know, uh, and, you know, Fortunately, we didn't have to walk that out any further. He did, was able to get his medication within the next day or two. Um, but I try and tell him, like, if they don't give your medication, you know, do breathing, you know, eat some garlic, other little things, you know. Um, he tunes into that kind of stuff. You know, I try and be kind of, you know, spiritual in him in that respect. And, um, and, and you know what, sometimes, you know, we, we kind of feed off each other. And, like, I told him, you know, like, I got this. So all I need you to do is, and the rest I got. And, you know, when it's time to flip or if I tell them, you know, I need I need to be able to lean on you or vice versa. And we don't have that thing where, you know, this this particular part of the relationship is a male thing or a female thing. Um, I recognize that, you know, and, and people sometimes I'll tell people, I said this to him or this, that, and the other. And they're like, oh, my God, you said that to him. I said, you know, make no mistake. I'm not running anything. <laughs> you know, um, but no. I am very verbal about how I feel and what I want and don't want. Um, but my ability to be able to do that came from him. You know, he, you know, telling me that, you know, the power I have as a woman, you know, 
introducing me to being able to tune into that and empowering me. I, it may have bit him a little bit because uh, I am not shy.
this this call for mass incarceration. Why is your Why is your husband been incarcerated since 19, April 
they locked them up. And it's so, um, you know, they were able to, 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 to really be able to hold them all that time um, based on what they thought they might potentially do. And so now when they're coming out of this and we're looking at the damages and the effects and the fact that, you know, CDC will never acknowledge that they did what they did, but, you know, there's documentation that states that shows that they knew what they anticipated, the effect of this, there's emails, there's all kinds of things, there's books, everything. They knew what, what, the, what the sensory deprivation and all of the things that they did, they knew what the potential effect of that would be. They knew that. Go. 
Hello, if you are just tuning in, this is Nube on Prison Focus Radio at KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the web at kpoo.com. I do want to invite you to visit the California Prison Focus website at prisons.org. And also I want to give a shout out to our community members behind the walls. Please continue to write to us and subscribe to the newspaper and invite your family members to do so. You can write to us at California Prison Focus, 4408 Market Street, Suite A, Oakland, California, 94608. Now we're going to continue with Anthony Robinson Jr., who is going to be sharing his wisdom and his thoughts on the necessity of working together and listening to um, our formerly incarcerated folks. They are the experts. And um, here we go. Most definitely, most definitely. I mean, like they, in the time, one of the, the first things, because I think I was kind of late on uh, the train, so to speak, with the COVID. Like, you know, just kind of in the work, organizing, doing it. And then, like I say, just for my prison experience, always taking things with a grain of salt. So I was kind of taken aback by how other folks were responding to it, not necessarily me being... Uh, counting on the information coming from the news and the media. But one of the more alarming things is when they started to kind of project it and it became an imposition. It was one, it was like a more voluntary, like, okay, these are some of the things you can do to kind of safeguard yourself. If, but now it's more shelter in place. And I was doing some research on social isolation and chronic socialization increases mortality by nearly 30%. So we understand that in our communities, like children aren't going to school in San Joaquin County, in Stockton, we were responding to teen suicides because schools were their outlet and home was not an outlet. So now we're having folks confined into home situations and environments that they don't have any escape from. Their ideal world and their daily routine and their program has been uh, torn apart. So I think we need to factor in through checking our own experiences, like say how is work from home uh, affecting our productivity and also how is it uh, promoting our creativity. Right? I think one of the things that I'm relying on heavily is my formerly incarcerated experience in prison. Immediately adopted the program, put a structure in, and even for the youth develop, okay, well, if you're not going to school, where's recess? Point to it. Okay, now recess has become our backyard. So I'm developing a, a workout routine on Facebook going live Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays just to get some physical activity into it to combat it. Like I say, they're, they're not giving us any effective tools to boost our immune system. I mean, everyone's talking about masks and toilet paper and washing of the hands, and those things are, are, are great, but our community is being traumatized and harmed, and we need to develop and start a training, start trauma-informed care now, responding to that, and then also building capacity so folks can handle the aftermath of this thing. Right, so you're thinking about the long term. 
Yeah. And gearing up for that, I mean, right yeah. now I was just talking to one of the comrades and what we don't realize, we're actually in a state of martial law right now. Right, right. Not later, not not doomsday, qualified martial law. There's, there's two aspects of martial law, qualified martial law and absolute martial law. Qualified martial law is when any military, for, we've been seeing the tanks, we've been seeing uh, the shipments, they're coming in and, and, and they're setting up positions in uh, key areas. But anytime the military forces come to assist police force, we're in a state of qualified martial law. Now, absolute martial law is when the military just comes and pushes the police aside. They're not work, and they come and take over. This, but 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 if we understand it in one context of the absolute, then we'll we'll kind of sink ourselves into a, a, a implied and, and really de facto state of, of, of martial law. And then the fear monitoring doesn't really help. So, like I said, how are we properly resourcing our community? Like some of our children. Uh, and these marginalized communities were already failing in the classroom. Now imagine where the home studies and how do we get the, the importance of like we're not on vacation. We're not on this is not a vacation. Right? This is right. A, a, a disruption uh of our lives and really uh a, a really a, a telling uh, a lot of the things like that we have already been pursuing. Now we're seeing also where we need to shore up our resources and where a lot of the resources and a lot of the things that we, we, we were told were ameliorated were not. We're seeing hospitals with that, that don't have the capacity that we probably uh, assumed that they had to handle the crisis. We're seeing even crisis units. So, so we're like, where's all the fun? Like, what was the, what's the point of having an emergency or a crisis unit? And then when one comes, you don't have it. Now we're seeing things that we took for granted becoming a great nuance in our daily ordinances of, of how we carry out our lives, like face masks. Who just thought like a hospital would would run out of a supply of face masks? That's something that, that this time last year was was taken for granted. Now it becomes like a, a, a valued increase of necessity for the people, and that's one of the things that uh, as organizer with a uh, time done two or nine, uh, being one of the the organizers. We're asking, I don't know if you heard, they're going to release 3,500 incarcerated individuals throughout California. And as great as a victory that is, we need to measure and see, like, what is that release going to do? How much of that release, uh, what percentage that 3,500 already has housing? What percent needs housing? What is the capacity? Right now I'm checking with transitional housing and the capacity and stocking in San Joaquin to try to get a number, how many beds can be filled, and then how long do we reach capacity, and then where do they go? So how do we organize with the families to basically uh, better support them in the welcoming? Because we don't want a mass scare of, like, now even families don't want to let folks in to the home because of the COVID-19 hysteria, or the COVID-19, excuse me. Exactly, and it's so, it's so prejudiced. And one of the one of the, the biggest things that that kind of urged me to reach out to you, even yesterday, it was, it was like a timely matter, especially coming off of the uh, All Our None conference uh, from Facebook that I had attended. But even now, it shows how much the, the Prison Speakers Bureau is needed. 
Because like you say, where do you pull from the resource and as how do you if we already had a platform to put those of us who have the experience into positions, we have the experience to kind of help the community code and select what resources and how to get through these times. We have an expertise in dealing with lockdown. We have expertise in dealing with isolation. Right. We have expertise, right, in, in dealing with trying to build a program where no one else is offering any resources. We have an expertise in, in, in developing an internal uh, resources and checking and measuring that, right? But because most uh, platforms, like I say, unless it's us kind of like taking care and reaching out for each other, and it's like how much do we have a national voice, the national platform should be calling and selecting and bringing us in to these conversations, to the so so for me, the biggest uh, concern I have because that's not happening. I know there's another narrative that's being created, and there's another self-interest that's being served that's folks that are going to use this to expand the gap and widen uh, the marginality of those populations that's already oppressed, that's already strapped for resources that's already in food deserts, et cetera. One of the organizers uh, had reminded me how much we need, because instinctively we know the things that the institution should be doing. And it was interesting because in one minute, as I just like, when I began to remember and just went down the list, it's like, oh, we wouldn't even know to ask to check for that. And I get a call from my brother every week, and we thought we had a system in place that, hey, if I don't hear from you in two weeks, then I'm going to call up there. But it's like you don't just call a prison or an institution. You have to know who to call. You have to know, like, certain, especially in this time. And you also have to know what questions to ask to make sure that your, your loved one is getting the right accommodations, especially during a, a state of emergency as this is. Because like like a lot of uh, organizers are recognizing, if it gets into the prisons out of hand, and they say about forty percent or more staff are putting in uh, vacation, et cetera. So most of the prisons now are in a state of emergency just because of shortage staff, and they're going on first watch status heavily. So now socialization is not really ideal, in a lot of the barracks and uh, the gyms. And then things like that. So how are we making sure that the nurses are making their rounds, that the counselors are making their rounds, and if they're doing this release, that the prisoners are getting the right information per the release? I've gotten a few uh, accounts that certain brothers were being informed that they had a release date, and then a few days later they were told that that, that was an error. So we also have... Uh, a responsibility to make sure not to give folks hopes up that are already maybe uh, on edge or maybe like you know what I mean. So we don't want to exacerbate in that in that area. So that, that's not even that's not like a minor thing out here. That's not a minor thing. I don't think anywhere in any environment, but most mm -hmm. definitely even in a prison environment where you've been waiting to come home for so many years and you 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 be told that you're given a release date and it to be taken away by just some errors. Like no, nah, we have to be more responsible and that we can't allow panic to allow us to overlook certain things as mistakes that just like uh, should already be in the structure of these systems that we've already been paying into for so long. 
I would love your thoughts on, um, uh, yeah, the, the call for mass, mass decarceration. That's interesting because uh, with all due respect, I go back to the need for the Speaker's Bureau, and as I see it being more than a Speaker's Bureau, being a alumni of folks who have an expertise in the lived experience. So not only are we consultants, not, not only we speak, but we're also mentors. Where else would you go to line up folks who are getting out with folks who are already made the transition into uh, responsive adulthood, who've already navigated the reentry services? So with, with the Speaker's Bureau, you get all these things and more, but then you also get somewhere where folks in these times can go and select through all types of reentry and dealing with uh, just a multitude of issues. So I think it, it, it's just interesting how right now time necessitates that if we don't have the right folks narrating this problem. I've, I've been speaking right the last three weeks strongly and heavily when I do speak on these uh, on a lot of these uh, calls that I've been uh, invited to about a pre-COVID-19 worldview, but also what's developing is a post-COVID-19 worldview. And unfortunately, I don't see enough of our folks, our people, in the in the designing of that, the other side it has a heavy influence in designing the post COVID nineteen worldview. So if, if we allow that to happen, then what's going to happen is that influence, same influence when you go to your story and you don't want to be kind of in all of the hysteria. But if you go into Walmart and two hundred people are, are rushing it and moving it, you you begin to accommodate to that pace similar to driving. So so what I'm saying, even with this post-COVID-19 worldview that I see shaping up, we need, we need at this time, more resources from those who are closest to the, the proximity of, of, like I say, the experience. Land of the free, it lies the home of the homeless. Too many die every day, and we really just want this freedom.
the 13th Amendment. We thought this would be the one that would end it, but we still harass, still mass incarceration. So much for the Emancipation Proclamation. Oh, but be careful, black men. I know you eager to climb. Slavery is legal if you're convicted of a crime. And when that crime that you committed probably don't fit the time. How you building ships for NASA and they pay you a dime. A conspiracy, they try to censor you when you speak. They can't hide behind the sheet, so not they do you like me. Meanwhile, you taking chances out here trying to survive. Yeah, not a lot has changed since 1865, but still they try to teach you that everybody's equal until you up for the same job as white people. Just know until we walk into the gates of the kingdom, we gon' stand here united, ready to fight for our freedom. Mind you, these men have been deemed the worst of the worst by CDC small r, when in fact they are really the best of the best. And we aim to change that narrative out here and really educate the the public. This is a piece that has been developed by Imwilimo. And again, he is part of that Ashker class that has suffered the torture of decades of solitary confinement. And he, like many others, um, stay strong and committed to um, uplifting their community from the inside and so that they can continue that work when they finally get out here. So here we're going to talk about the Youth Community Action Program, YCAP. YCAP is both an educational training program and a socialist economic nonprofit initiative which targets underclass youth and neighborhoods, employing volunteers from the youth's own community and family to work in concert with YCAP organizers in a two-phase development initiative. Phase one involves a five times a week, two and a half hour after school educational and training initiative that focuses on history from the true nationalist perspective. Think Zinn, Diop, and De La Valle, who taught real ethnic his and her stories. From cultural awareness in order to stop racial conflicts and strife between oppressed nationalities, such as Mexicans and New Africans. Computer and technological literacy, instead of playing video games or being active on social media, and learning the arts and science, engineering. 
the important things that will enable more productivity in other fields needed. Three out of five days a week, the final hour will be devoted to martial arts, self-defense training, and strategic thought. Participants must comply with the participation requirements of Phase 1 to be eligible for Phase 2 inclusion. Phase 2 involves establishing a collectively owned community-based business which each youth participates, sorry, let's start that again. Phase two involves establishing a collectively owned community-based business which each youth participant will own an equal stake in and be trained in the area of the venture which best suits them. All will receive equal pay, profit portion, that's collective work and responsibility, egalitarian distribution of wealth. The pilot venture will be a custom car garage or buying refurbished HUD homes or creating an organic garden, where we will seek in-kind donations of equipment and old cars can be tax deductible, cash donations and fundraiser revenue to fund the rest. Volunteers from that industry will train each youth in exchange for marketing publicity for their own business and will seek industry-related corporate sponsors such as a socioeconomic, socioeconomic war using the enemy's own resources to strengthen our struggle. The cars will be retrofitted, rebuilt, and made real nice into custom lowriders, donks, and whatever is in style and put on the lot for sale and website auction. The proceeds from each sale or client fix-up will be split equally among the youth, 50% of the profit. 20% will go to expand the nonprofit initiative, 20% will go to a college fund for them all, and 10% will flow back into expanding their venture. We, in this manner, provide them with an economic incentive to be indoctrinated into scientific socialist practices and revolutionary progressive politics bring the community closer to one another and the organization they establish and introduce a new source of revenue into the underclass community where that chapter of YCAP is based. These are just a few ideas to show what self-sufficiency looks like. Winning back our community is of paramount importance. We have a world to win and our youth is the future. One love, one struggle, your bro, Imolimo. Lastly, we're going to hear from Comrade Malik. He's going to be giving an update on COVID inside the prison where he is at USP Pollock. And um, he is part of the organizing Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee and End Prison Slavery in Texas Movement. Greetings, comrades. This is Comrade Malik of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee with my COVID-19 update behind enemy lines at USP Pollock in Louisiana. Hustle and motivate. Hustle and motivate. That's why they follow me. They think I know the way. Rest in power, Nipsey Hustle. Rest in power, Nipsey Hustle. The marathon continues. Peace and blessings, sisters and brothers. Today is Saturday, April 11th, 2020. I do have an update to provide you with, but first I am sending out a shout-out to some individuals and organizations in the free world who have gone the extra mile to support us and amplify the voices of incarcerated human beings in America. First, I send out a big shout-out and a clenched fist salute to our comrades at Kite Line Radio in Indiana. 
Tightline has shared my reports and reports of numerous other prisoners who are facing the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you, Tightline, for broadcasting our voices. Free Comrade Kwame Shakur. Free Comrade Kevin Rashid Johnson. Free them now. My second shout-out is to the Rock Nation and Team Rock. I'm sending out a specific shout-out directly to rappers Jay-Z and Meek Mill. I want to personally thank Jay-Z and Meek for donating literally thousands of protective masks for prisoners housed in U.S. prisons and jails. Thank you, Jigga, and thank you, Meek. We love y'all. In the land of the free with the blacks and slaves, three-fifths of a man, I believe, is the phrase. Jay-Z's grandma said, baby, watch what you say. They're going to have to kill me, grandma. I ain't never going to be their slave. Oh, say, can you see? I don't feel like I'm free, locked down in a cell, stuck up from ankles to feet. Oh, y'all th- This call is from a federal prison. Y'all thought your boy, Comrade Malik, was going to start rapping? Gotcha. Now back to the report. All right. I have a progress report to provide in regard to how some governors and prison officials are responding to our national call to free our elders. On Thursday, April 9, 2020, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards made a very interesting announcement during his daily COVID-19 briefing. Governor Edwards said that on Tuesday, April 14th, the Louisiana Department of Corrections would begin to evaluate older state prisoners for placement on furloughs or home confinement. Specifically, Governor Edwards said that state prisoners over 60 would be evaluated by a board consisting of members from various law enforcement backgrounds. From the list of these individuals doing the evaluating, not one individual would be considered friendly toward prisoners or their family members. I recommend strongly that we keep a close eye on Louisiana and the state of Texas. I want us to know, I want all of you to know, that Alvaro Luna Hernandez is a long-held, politicized prisoner in Texas. He is an elder who is suffering from hepatitis C. We need to free Alvaro now. Free him. He deserves his freedom. We don't want him to die of COVID-19 or any other disease while he's incarcerated. Free our elders, please. Free Alvaro Luna Hernandez. Both these states, Texas and Louisiana, have long histories of incarcerating a disproportionate number of black and Latinos in their prisons and jails. Sisters and brothers, I want you to think about something for a second. COVID-19 is killing black people in Louisiana and all over the United States at an alarming rate. If prisons and jails in America are jam-packed with blacks, don't you think we should continue to advocate for our people and their release? If we don't advocate for our people, who will? Sisters and brothers, on Friday, April 10th, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards was caught flat-footed when a reporter asked him what the state of Louisiana was going to do to help prisoners at the federal prison in Oakdale, Louisiana. Governor Edwards personally hasn't shown any interest in saving the lives of federal prisoners trapped at FCI Oakdale. The death toll is going up and up at FCI Oakdale. We are hearing that there have been seven to nine deaths and that COVID-19 is just running rampant throughout the FCI Oakdale. Governor Edwards might not care, but I care. And I'm calling Governor Edwards out for 
inability to evacuate the prisoners at Oakdale. With all due respect, Governor Edwards, I demand you save the lives of prisoners being ravaged by the COVID-19 epidemic at SCI Oakdale. Get them out of there now. Before I end this report, I want to send out a shout-out and pander love to Tia Hamilton of State vs. Us magazine. Tia Hamilton helped organize a call for the release of prisoners all across the United States. State vs. Us magazine is one of the premier magazines which focuses on criminal justice reform. If you haven't read State vs. Us magazine, I suggest you go pick up a copy today. I actually interviewed Tia Hamilton recently, and my interview with Tia Hamilton will be appearing soon in the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper. The San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper is the baddest black newspaper in the United States. And if you haven't subscribed to it, you're all wrong. You need to check it out, www.ffbayview.com. I want to thank all of you for your unwavering support. This is Comrade Elite at USP Polar. Signing off. Please take care of yourself and stay safe and healthy. I love you all. Goodbye. Thank you, folks. That's our show for today, for this week. Thank you so much for joining me. I've missed you. Please stay strong. Please stay healthy. And let's act in solidarity and in the spirit of Ubuntu, shared humanity. Um, Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer.